0: everyone thank you for coming to this week's podcast of Bringing up their wall in music i'm tara your host i don't know why i waved you can't see me waving um this week i have a friend and colleague courtney conkling on would you like to talk about yourself a little bit maybe like what's your disability what instrument do you play hi so
1: i'm courtney conkling as previously stated i am primarily a flutist but i'm also currently pursuing a music education degree and trying to like expand my horizons, which might be the theme of tonight, by like exploring some of my um, secondary instruments. And um, yeah, I'm about to start slash technically started, but starting at Hofstra University this fall to study flute and piccolo with Brandon Patrick George, which I'm really excited about and pursue my music education degree and make more connections on Long Island, which is where I'm from originally. Massapequa, New York, born and raised. Um, yeah, I play the flute. I'm a music educator. I, I'm a mental health advocate. I, I study with, I don't study with. I, I live with bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder as of right now me and my care team are exploring some other possible diagnoses but life's complicated brains are complicated we're figuring it out and yeah that's who i am
0: um so i know you've been to like quite a different whole bunch of different schools because obviously i met you at, at crane and would you like to talk about that Yeah. So
1: I went to Massapequa High School on Long Island, did the whole like all state, all eastern, bunch of youth orchestras, like the whole the whole shebang of like future music student who wants to go to school. And I auditioned for many schools, but I ended up at the Queen School of Music with Tara in SUNY Potsdam studying flute with Kenneth B. Andrews can love him. Um and yeah, I was a music education and performance double major at the time. I throughout like middle school, high school and going into college, I had my mental health stuff going on in the background, but I was like succeeding in my school and my academic career. So not no one cared, but no one really thought to ask how I was and I really struggled like fitting in and making friends at Potsdam my first year just because I was so like laser focused on like got to be a great performer got to practice for hours and hours and hours way more than necessary a day and like I have really high goals for myself like I mean wind ensemble which is one of the top ensembles at Crean as a freshman which not never happens but like that's a big accomplishment especially in a studio as big as the flute studio and um yeah i really my second year i kind of settled in more i still had my mental health stuff going on but i um my flute professor ken B andrews suddenly retired in the middle of the second semester and for personal reasons and i wanted to have control over who i was studying with because By my second year, I realized, hey, maybe this, the intensity of being a primarily, like, gotta audition for orchestras, gotta be the best flutist in the world, is really a kind of pressure that I don't need in my life, and I, as I got more experience actually educating others, I realized that's more important to me in the end, is spread, like, in the end, the point of music is sharing it with others, and if you don't have a population who has some music education background, they won't be able to connect with those performers anyway. So I, w- music education became more of a goal in my life. Uh, but performance was still really important to me. And who I was studying with is really important to me. And I wanted to be in charge of that search at, not SUNY Potsdam, but like elsewhere. I wanted to have control over my teacher. So... I transferred to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, to study with Molly Barth, and they have a five-year music ed- education program that you leave with a master's. And yeah, I was like in high school, like Vanderbilt was my dream school, but I got rejected at pre-screens, like the pre-live audition round. And um, I mostly just auditioned as, like, a transfer, like, this was a frantic, like, send email, like, hi, my teacher randomly just retired in the middle of the spring semester, type, 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 can you help me? Here's some videos of me playing. Love me, bye. And um, (laughs) then it was just, like, I I surprisingly was invited to a live audition at Vanderbilt, which in itself was a big achievement for me, because previously I really wanted to go to Vanderbilt, but um, I got rejected at pre-screen, so even being invited to a live audition was a big deal to me, and um, I, like, took my little bus to Syracuse and, like, got on my, like, two planes and, like, spent a whole weekend on my way to Nashville to meet Molly Barth, and it was a really great audition, really great lesson, and I was really excited to go there at first. But if you're not familiar with Vanderbilt, it's like a very high achieving, like for high achieving like academic students and students who are high achievers in their cho- chosen career paths. And um, which obviously, and as students. you all know in this, yeah, in this classist, lovely capitalistic America we live in that often means a lot of rich people and Vanderbilt has been trying to fight against that, like, I hesitate to say stereotype because it's true, but they, they offer, like, full tuition to anybody who has, um, who gets FAFSA or financial aid, so I was, I was only paying to live there in Nashville, which I would have had to pay for anyway. I wasn't paying tuition, I was saving money, and like, had significantly less student loans, woo! But, um, yeah, but it was really interesting. I was still meeting a lot of new people. And like, I was talking to Tara before we started enrolling. Um, I feel like college is just as much about like being educated in your field as being educated about the world around you and the people who share this planet with you. And, um, I met some great friends there, but I was really struggling with my mental health and, I had been seeing therapists for a long time, like since like middle school, high school on and off. But I, my therapist at Vanderbilt was like, hey, maybe you should finally reach out to a psychiatrist because this has been such a chronic thing throughout your life. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's try it. And I was misdiagnosed with um, depression. So we tried an SSRI. And I started making some very interesting decisions that greatly impacted my life that were, I, in my current pretty stable state, I probably would not make those same decisions. And I wasn't sleeping. I was like super enthusiastic about like all my classes and my professors. I was like, I felt like my mind was racing. I kept being like, mom, I think I have ADHD. Mom, I think I have ADHD. I like my I couldn't finish a thought in my brain. And um, like it would just be interrupted with a different thought. And like they wouldn't necessarily be connected. I was making a lot of impulsive decisions. And um after I had an open conversation with my therapist, she was like, Yeah, I'm gonna talk to your psychiatrist. And he was like, Okay, I think you're bipolar. And I was like, Oh. <laughs> And in retrospect, like, like I was telling Tara before we started rolling, I um, I recently went through my Instagram and I saw so many things in like high school where I was like, "Oh my god, guys, depression cured!" I just went for a run at three a.m. I got four hours of sleep total in the past week, and I love the flu, and I love all my friends, and I love everything in this planet, and we live in such a great world, and everything's great, and I love everything. And I was just like, now in retrospect, with my current diagnosis, I'm like, huh. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was diagnosed with bipolar after having that manic episode. And as I said in the past, I've had some hypomanic on that line of hypo versus actual mania. If you're not familiar with bipolar disorder, quick dive in that I should probably do. Bipolar disorder is a mental illness with two saw so- two phases there's mania or hypomania where there's a lot of euphoria you probably aren't sleeping a lot you're very excited about everything your thoughts go super fast and all these things but it's like lots of energy lots of go 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 lots of enthusiasm versus the opposite which is depression which many of us are more familiar with which um is like you feel really lonely, even if that's not true. You're like, sleep is also affected. You, it's a lot of like just sadness and like, you're not yourself. Both of them, you're not yourself, but for opposite reasons. And it's two phases. Usually they last like a couple weeks to a couple months at a time. I've heard, like I said, I was misdiagnosed with depression beforehand. And um. Yeah, I lived with depression for so much of my life that I just thought my previous hypomanic episodes were just how regular people were, except I was super motivated, but I was already like a smart, like acad- very into academics and music person that I just thought that was who I was. I didn't really realize that this excessive
0: motivation
1: and enthusiasm wasn't normal. But after I had that extreme, like, full-blown manic episode due to my prescription of an antidepressant, I chose to check myself in to Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital. I had an interesting experience. We got my meds in order, but, um, yeah, I, I left, and I was pretty confident in myself, starting an intensive outpatient program, and then I had a downswing, which is usually usually, your manic episodes swing down into like an intense depression after the fact. And I personally just didn't see a reason for living my life anymore. And I was like, I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. There's no cure. I'm not super confident in my doctors and the medical field as a whole, because there's so much stigma against mental illness and so much like Doctors don't always take people seriously, especially women. And I felt like I was just, it was tough. And so I had a suicide attempt. Trigger warning. I should have mentioned that. Um, Trigger warning. But that's
0: okay. Before people listen, I'll write trigger warnings. Okay, thank you. Um.
1: Yeah, I decided my life wasn't worth living, and I had a suicide attempt. Ended up back at Vanderbilt psychiatric, and um, after that, I was like, you know what, this is getting pretty intense. I think I need to take a step back from academics, and so I took my first medical leave for the rest of the year. And then COVID hit. It was 2020. We all are familiar with the pandemic at this point. And um, I went back to school
2: in. Fall twenty twenty, yeah Vanderbilt with the masks, the whole shebang. This isn't working, and I took a second medical leave, which I'm finishing up now, and
1: I'm about to start. I. Sort of I t- I took a summer class in something non related to music, but I'm about to finish up my degree at Hofstra University on Long Island, which I'm really excited about because especially studying at two far away schools, I've come to realize a lot of music education is more about making those connections where you want to teach, as opposed to um know, like the fancy school you go, because Vanderbilt's a great a, very good school but not everyone's super familiar with it and not everyone knows it's like is familiar with their program and even though it's a really strong program if they don't know it then what's the point so but everyone on Long Island at least has heard of University because it's right there and um they'll be familiar with what kind of training you have so I'm excited to start a Hofstra. I'm really excited to start studying with Baron and Patrick George. And um,
2: yeah, I'm excited to get my degree.
0: I think that there's some like really interesting things that you talked about. And I think that a lot of the things that you talk about feed into ableism. And I think one of the most important things that I was especially thinking about when you were talking about, because I, I actually do have, oh, Hello, sorry. If from, okay, good. So, like, I actually have ADHD. So, and it took me a long time to get diagnosed. And it's kind of like um, talking about from both of us being women, talking about the lenses of how misdiagnosed we are constantly because. My doctor tried diagnosing me with depression and anxiety for them to just go, no, you have this other thing. And I think it's really interesting that for women, especially women with mood disorders or other assortments of things, were first diagnosed with depression and anxiety and told that's the only thing that you have. When it's way more than that. Yeah. First... I think a lot
1: of people are significantly more familiar with depression and anxiety. So if they can fit it into that nice little box that they know about, that's not, and I, there's a lot, I'm organizing my thoughts as I speak. So this might not follow a straight line, but like I was originally misdiagnosed with depression, which makes sense because I had depression symptoms. I was very depressed but I also had these episodes where I was like, Oh, I feel better. Oh, life's great. Woohoo!" And like, people just thought that was normal because they thought that's who I was. And like, especially in high school, a lot of my depression was hidden behind my anxiety of like, so I was perfectionist. Like, like I said, I was very good at school. I was very good at music and I was so worried about that, like facade falling down that, my anxiety kind of like countered my depression at the time. And I just looked fine, but um, yeah, it became more of an issue in college. Cause like, I didn't know people, I didn't have that support system with me. And um, I only had to have, I had to have that extreme manic episode for my symptoms to be finally diagnosed. And even then, like, people, like, bipolar is, like, scarier than depression and anxiety because, like I said, it's less familiar. And I don't know if you're familiar with the author John Green, but he just released a great video on his channel (laughs) called, called like, Physical Mental Illness. Yeah. Which is, like, how he struggles with both mental and physical illness and goes to therapies for both of them. And he was talking about how um, people thought his physical illness was just uh, um, like a symptom of his mental illness at the time until they found a physical cause and then the way he was treated completely changed.
0: Well, it's like the way that people with invisible disabilities like you or I and especially people who aren't cis straight white men are treated very, very, very differently and it's like I've noticed that, like, at least women, a lot of the time, like, in high school and in, like, younger academics, we kind of learn to do what they call masking to a certain level. And that's why we get diagnosed so late. And then once we're out of that, it's like, oh, I can't even mask anymore. Who am I?
1: Yeah, it's really tough. Like, I think The Onion recently released an article that was like, woman's disorder is finally bad enough to be believed by doctors. Like, it has, and like I said, I don't remember if I said this before we were rolling or after, but um, people always assume their own pain is worse than other people's pain, especially if the other people's pain
2: is invisible to them. Like, I was in some... and the medical staff was like oh you're
1: really letting the ensemble down because you're not participating they're missing out you can't see a migraine they just thought I was overreacting and then the following rehearsal I was like okay I'm gonna try to push through I don't feel so great but I really need to learn this drill I really need to get it together and so I I passed out because my medication just changes the way my body processes water. So I get really dehydrated really easily. Hence the migraine the week before. And so I passed out, which is a very visible thing. (laughs) And suddenly it was much more like, oh, I guess she's not overreacting. And it's just really frustrating how, especially as a woman, this is just the case for things. And with mental illness, like mental illness is already really stigmatized because it's about emotions and emotions are something you're supposed to like be able to, and I could go on a side rant. I'm distracting myself now of like how men, it's okay to be like visible with like anger and like masculine emotions. But when women like get like sad or upset and like start to cry or something and, and which is perceived as much more feminine, it's a lot more like embarrassing, but um, anger is okay because that's perceived as masculine and that makes a man more manly. And sexism really plays into ableism and is a big part of mental health stigma, at least in my opinion. And it's just interesting how all the isms feed into the other isms.
0: And it's just... Oh, it's so interesting. I don't how you know how in. much you know, but there's actually um, like a new rising topic called Music and Disability Studies. And it's like a historian type thing. And uh, um, Dr. Brooks offers this... I'm I plugging her because I love Dr. Brooks. Yeah. Um, if you go to Crane, take Music and Disability Studies with Dr. Aaron Brooks. I'm not kidding. it is his an amazing class. Anyway, plug done. Um, essentially... <laughs> the class talks a lot about how like gender and race play into not only our music, but the way that our music takes things like race and gender and makes these folks seem even worse by portraying them as being disabled. You know, there's like, like, for instance, like, there's a lot of music that portrays like a lot of operas that portray women as having mania. They're like only women can have mania. They're 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 these nasty people because they're disabled. Or there's the black folk being portrayed as being crippled because, because they're black and they want to make them seem even worse because they're disabled. And it's it's horrible that, you know, we think, oh, ableism's not a part of the music scene, but, but it is. Not only is it a part of the music scene, it's in the music that we participate in and it's portrayed through women and BIPOC people and it's horrible.
1: Very much agree. I could go into, um, so a lot of people I can only speak for bipolar disorder because that's where I've done most of my research because that's what I live with, but especially a lot of other mood disorders. And you can tell with like popular, like quote unquote emo music and stuff like that. A lot of people in music and in art live with mental illness. And um, like, for example, like one of my favorite examples and one of my favorite musicians, I love her is Britney Spears and her 2000, I think it was 2007, she had her big manic episode and it was very public and it was really tough. And now like I live with the same thing where like when, like there's always that fear of having another manic episode and um, you have to trust other people sometimes to look over your decisions, even though you're like, I'm an independent adult, this is frustrating. But sometimes, like, you can't always trust your brain when you live with a mental illness. And with her whole conservatorship and everything, there's a point where, like, you're stable and you can make your own decisions. It's just sometimes when you're not stable and it's just really tough and free Britney. (laughs) But that's just one example of the many musicians who live with mental illness and how it changes the way it changes the way you think and it changed your motivation and I have so many I, like I love like it was a joke where like after I got rejected from Vanderbilt for the first time in high school I wore my My Chemical Romance shirt to school for a week because I was so emo that I didn't get in but um music like that is really relatable for people who are going through tough times. And music is a great way to channel those emotions. And there's so many beautiful pieces and symphonies and concertos and all the things in the more classical side that are
0: musicians going through stuff. Yeah, and, but, and it's it, also like a lot of those instances, these composers have also like they have portrayed, I'm going to say us because I'm also disabled. It portrays us in ways that were nasty. And I think that the contrast is interesting because there is that type of music that basically says, these people are nasty. They don't believe they deserve to be on this earth. And then there's music that like Britney Spears does that is like who she is, you know? It's like, I have this thing, this is it, you know? And I find, like, the contrast really interesting, especially when we're talking about, like, different genres of music. I also think
1: that relates to how the stigma has changed over time. And there is still plenty of stigma. But, like, my parents don't love how I'm pretty generally public and open about my disorders. And, um... Like now it's a it's still like quote unquote okay to talk about it because oh she's a musician, she's a creative, crazy creatives, stuff like that. But even still in the classical music world specifically, I think there's still a lot of stigma to work through. Cause like some of my like music professors at Vanderbilt were different degrees of understanding when i spoke like when i just got out of the hospital and i w- i was very open about it from the beginning i was like hey i had a manic episode i was super into the flute for like a month or so so because i was having a manic episode and i was super enthusiastic about music now that's changing just because of hormones and chemicals in my brain changing and my performance level might change. I'm still doing my best and I'll keep you updated. And I could tell some people were more comfortable with that than other people. And, um, I don't know. I think, I think music is getting better, especially also love her Simone Biles and her choice at the Olympics to, um, take a step back from the Olympics due to her mental health because she got like the twisties is what the gymnasts call it is when you um like your inner ear loses track of where you are in space and I'm reading a great book it's called Chatter I forget the name of the author but he's a professor at University of Michigan and it's about how we talk to ourselves like in our internal monologue and how that can have a negative effect on how we perform at our jobs in our sports in our artistic endeavors and um it's really interesting because he was talking about this pitcher in professional baseball who like threw a 90 mile per hour fastball in high school and was um what's the word for when they pick you into the, the major leagues i don't know but um he was like drafted. He was drafted into the major leagues right out of high school as a pitcher. And then one time he's, like, on TV in front of everyone in front of a stadium full of people. And he, um like, he's pitching and the ball gets away from him. And it's a wild pitch, which happens to everyone sometimes. But then it was another one. And another one. And another one. And then people were sort of like, hey... And they pull him out of the game and somehow his body just like, he, he suddenly didn't have that muscle memory anymore. He had to like, think about every specific little action of throwing the ball, which is a lot like musicians when, you know, like, you know, when you like start to get really into your head when you're performing and suddenly you have to like, think about all the notes and think about like how it goes and think about like how your fingers have to work and how that like embouchure or whatever has to work or however your specific instrument of choice works and um yeah he like he had to he had to retire from professional baseball at 25 which is super young and then eventually like as he started working on the way he talked to himself in his internal monologue he rejoined the major leagues as an outfielder, a very successful outfielder who could like hit plenty of home runs. And during a showcase of retired pitchers from the major leagues, like 10, 15 years later, he struck out the first three batters he had. Like, you can rebound from these things and you can recover from mental illness. And there's no cure, at least for mine. But, um, you can become stable and it's you have to live with it your entire life you always have to watch out but it i I hate when people like oh my god it gets better but like it's true it it does get better and you you learn to live with it that's why things like adhd and kids for example like kids are already learning how to regulate their emotion Kid, like kids cry all the time over the most like mundane and little things because they don't know how to regulate your emotions yet. And that's kids whose brains work, quote unquote, normally. And let alone if you have ADHD and those like attention and focus and the way like
0: all those things. Oh. The, well, the thing, for, the thing for people with ADHD is that we actually our whole lives will live with emotional dysregulation, even if we learn yeah. how to regulate our emotions, because like you said, it's just a part of who we are um at least from the lenses of like ADHD it's like way more complex than not being able to focus it's like not feeling time passing it's not understanding that time even exists it's like literally having so much energy that you're excited that you can't sleep and then the next minute you're like crying for no reason (laughs) yeah I'm (laughs) like
1: It's Especially like- as a kid, and every kid is learning how to deal with emotions. Yeah. Every kid is learning how to like focus and like motivate themselves to do things and like all these things. So it's like tough as a kid, but like over time you live with these and like part of it's masking. Yeah. And we yes. could go into <laughs> part of it is also just growing up and learning this is how my brain works. This is how my body works. This is how I live.
0: This is how I deal with it. So Yeah, and the sad thing is that due to stigmatization, a lot of kids grow up into adults that don't, like you said earlier, don't realize that not everyone experiences that, right? And it, it can create a lot of, like, not good things for them, but they can, you know, learn to live with that through resources and things,
1: Yeah, and I think it's just like, once again, my memory is shot. I've had electroconvulsive therapy done. I literally had my brain shocked. My memory is non-existent at this point in my life. But um, (laughs) I don't remember if this was rolling or not, but I was talking about how like college and like going away, even not going away and commuting to a college with like a new community of people and just meeting new people who come from different experiences than because you most people go to high school or middle school or elementary school within their town or county school district, and a bunch of people who live close to them, oftentimes, at least on Long Island, look like them and are in similar um financial classes. Like you you oftentimes grow up with a lot of people with very similar experiences to, not always the case, there's exceptions, but um, going to college, like, there's still, like, state schools are very different than, for example, Vanderbilt University, which is a rich kid's school, and, but, um, you still meet a lot of new people who, and, like, colleges are recognizing the importance of diversity and the importance of that, and, Trade schools are great. Not everyone has to go to college for their goals in life. I just think leaving your hometown for at least like a year or two or a little bit is so important. And just meeting new people and being exposed to different perspectives.
2: And, um, yeah, it really changes the way you think and like, really like, yeah. (laughs)
0: You're talking directly to someone who's going to a foreign country for grad school. So I get it. <laughs> like, you have to expand your horizons. And I think that like, even me living two hours away, I, I experience a whole bunch of new people from my home, like outside of my hometown. I'm glad that I had that experience because if I would have stayed in my hometown, I don't think I ever would have said, oh, I want to go across the pond and do this thing. You know, and I think that like once we open ourselves, even if it's not too far, you just like leave your hometown. Like, I promise it's worth it. (laughs) It's comes down to the classism
1: and the like financial limits of like some people can't afford to not live at home, and you could still have like you could still expand your horizons really greatly by like commuting to a different school, but some people can't afford college at all. And a lot of people can't afford to dorm somewhere. So it, there is some classism involved in that. But, um, like I said, like I've come to realize recently, like my parents recently lost their house or the house that I grew up in. And so like, we've had to find a big financial change, sorry, a big financial change in, um, recent years, but I've only recently come to realize just how privileged I grew up as a white person in an upper middle class neighborhood on the South Shore of Long Island whose parents could afford to not miss work but their work schedule allowed them to drive me to youth orchestras to come to my concerts to, and they they could afford to buy me a nice instrument that I needed to evolve as a musician and not everybody has those opportunities, and classism really plays, not to get away from the disability thing, classism also does play into disabilities, but, um, yes, it does, because it's totally
0: unaffordable to get a diagnostic,
1: yeah, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classism really plays oh. into and there's a lot, like, especially I found in Vanderbilt, there's a lot, and, like, For example, like drum corps, we were speaking about this before we were rolling, drum corps is a great activity that has a lot of meaning for a lot of people, but it's financially not an option for a lot of people, even though they would be great at it. And like, same with like a lot of youth orchestras, and there's a lot more options now with donors. With the push for diversity, they're realizing, huh? At least, even if it's not genuine, like, huh? We would look better and probably get more money, and be more popular if we had a black person on the cover, and like all those kinds of things. But um, yeah, I think class, like all once again, all the isms play into each other, and I don't know, especially now. Like I, like I said, I was lucky to do all the youth orchestras. I was lucky to do all the things. But I know in New York specifically, like I made Allstate as a Piccoloist, both junior and senior year of high school. And they have to take specific measures to not have
0: a slew of Long Island and Westchester people in all states. I'm because- from upstate New York, so I, I can confirm that because I only got into NISBA once in high school and I had above a 95 every single time in all of my NISBA solos. 95 and, the kids who are getting, yeah. and the kids who are getting those hundreds are <laughs> the kids who can afford to take lessons. Yes. To take the little I, things in their solos that I, get you those final points. I can speak from this from my own lens because I grew up in a place that was very small very conservative. My family was middle, lower class. We were like they could they could only afford so much, you know, and it's like um I did they didn't buy me an instrument. I actually I would not have been able to go to school if Crane did not give me a music scholarship. There is no way I could have gone to school for music. No way. At the end of my four years I did buy my instrument but I spent four years saving up for it with my own money and it's like there are a lot of people that are in bigger areas that have way more privilege to have access to lessons like i didn't get to work with a bass clarinetist though i did take regular clarinet lessons with someone that i you know i knew here in plattsburgh but i didn't have nearly as many opportunities as people on long island so (laughs) i definitely can understand from that like genuine classist lens and i was like oh i actually got to go to school here and be able to do that. And
1: like, like I said before, I spent a lot, like, a ridiculous time practicing my first year, excessive time practicing my first year, but I still had to carry, I still had to have a work study job, and I needed a work study job to, like, afford going to school, and that took away from practice and study time, and people who come from more financially privileged backgrounds don't really understand that they're just like oh just ask mommy and daddy for money and I'm just like "Mm." oh
0: my god (laughs) I love that it's true it's true I feel so bad but I've definitely no offense crane I've said that about some of the people that I've experienced at Crane, I've been like, (laughs) imagine, you know, and it's not like in an offensive way. It's a, I literally have to work 80 hours a week in order to sustain myself as a person. And then also for going to school. Yeah.
1: And it's really tough. And like, I'm very fortunate. My my parent, I have, my mom works for a hospital system. So I have pretty good health insurance, which helped when I was hospitalized four times in like just over a year but um what was I gonna say? like my parents help pay for my therapy which is great and I don't think I would be as stable as I am now if I didn't have those years of therapy behind me but um I don't know not, like and I'm lucky I come from like an upper middle class like mostly white town. Like I, I come from a very privileged background, but like also at the same time, I'm one of four kids all within 20 months of each other, three of them born at the same freaking time. And um, I don't know, I, I just have a very specific experience. Like not everyone brings something to the table. You can learn something from every person you meet. And that's one of the great things about college is you meet so many people and all of them come from different places. But, um, and everyone has something to bring to the table, but I, I feel like I just have a very specific background that not many people, and I've been speaking to my therapist about like how my experience as a triplet and one of four kids has impacted my mental health over time. And, um, I don't know, it's really interesting and I'm very fortunate to come from the background that I do. I've had my struggles, but it would be very different if my financial situation and my family relationships were different.
0: It's true and it's like, just as us talking now, like we come through backgrounds that might be similar in some ways, but they're also very different. And then I think that that's one of the best parts about meeting people is that you're like, oh, you know, like, I wouldn't have expected that. Or, oh, hmm, you know?
2: Yeah, and I think that's
1: one struggle with music school specifically is that a lot of musicians don't talk to non-musicians.
0: That and also a lot of the music people usually have some kind of money. Most of the yeah, time. Yeah, both most of those things of the time, which is also classist in itself. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like I know when I went to Crane, I didn't see a whole lot of people that looked like me in my background, and it was very interesting. (laughs) I mean, Crane is a state school, like that's significantly. Yes, which makes it even like you're like really, you know, like Vanderbilt. If I went to Vanderbilt, they'd be like, "You're poor, (laughs)
1: like (laughs) legit." I like oh even, when I was at Vanderbilt, like even my second year, I was trying to take it easy after I took my mental health leave, but I still had to work. Just I need to work to survive. And like I told my professor, like, oh, I can't make this like recital or whatever it was because I have work and I can't change it. He was like, why don't you just call out? And I was like, I think everyone should be required to work. A retail or food service or something like minimum wage-esque job for like a month in their life just so they understand
2: it's not something you could just like do and it changes your outlook on things and that's
1: I don't know we keep coming back to classism and I think it's interesting and
0: It's not wrong, and it's also, like, classism plays a lot into ableism because, again, diagnoses are really fucking expensive. Excuse my language. Also, not excuse my language because it's my podcast. I can swear if I want. (laughs) Sorry, children. But, like, I know that, like, when I try to get diagnosed, I went to SUNY Potsdam, and I went to their Trio and their Accommodative Services, and they're, like, pay $2,000 or we won't help you. So you can get diagnosed. And I was like, excuse me, I have full tap and Pell. What makes you think I can afford a $2,000 diagnosis?
1: That's one of the things that's great about going to a rich school that has the money to help their less fortunate students like Vanderbilt is that my therapy and my psychiatrist? were included in my like student fees, but I also was able to succeed enough under that poor background, not not even poor like middle class, my whatever it is background that we've discussed, and um, I was surrounded by people who didn't really get it because they came from more financially fortunate backgrounds, and um, even still, like also as a woman, like, not everyone trusts everything you say, and a lot of people, especially with an invisible illness, and
0: all the isms are connected. That's our theme of today. It's not wrong, and they're all in classical music, disgustingly.
2: <laughs> Just yay. like
0: the big and you're like, oh, yay! <laughs> like,
1: and I think classical music is getting better with like recognizing diversity, recognizing the importance of empowering it women depends. Color. It
0: depends. But from I, I can say from my own experience, it depends. From the lenses of being disabled, no. It's still very yeah, that one. It's still very, oh, we're inclusive. And they're like, oh, but not you. Because because you're disabled or you have a mental illness or oh, you can't do this exact thing this exact way. The amount of times I've experienced that in my undergrad without a diagnosis and expressed, I'm struggling. This makes no sense. I think I'm disabled. And they go, no, you're not. And I'm like, yes, I am. And then I get diagnosed and then they go, oh. And I go, yes, I am. And then they still don't help. <laughs> like, the diagnosis, like you said, like,
1: it like quote-unquote helps because then you have a reason behind it not that you still doesn't help because they don't care to actually include you yeah and it's like classical music specifically there's just there's this great podcast called bad with money by gabby dunn i was listening to her most recent episode today and they were talking about dress codes and where was i going with this it's a lot of like how like business casual was invented to like sell khakis and the whole point is that you're like not really like you don't want to dress too nice so you're not weird but you don't want to dress too casual so you're not like not getting the culture and it's a matter of like culture and like classical music kind of takes pride in its exclusivity and I don't, like, people who, are, like, I hate when people call it art music. Like, okay, pop music uh, is all. Like, there's still not, in classical music, like, that's a specific time. Like, they, we still haven't found a great word for whatever it is that we go to school to study. And I do think we need, like, Crane had a Latin ensemble. And, like, jazz is becoming more respected among, like, academic musicians. Yes. But it's there's still a long way to go. And and I think it's slowly getting better. I think COVID changed the way a lot of people think about music because we couldn't perform in like public places. And I'm interested to see, especially with the Delta variant and like the possibility of going back into quarantine. I'm interested in seeing how music evolves. Like, I know there was like Bo Burnham, who's a comedian musician. He had his great special, I know, it's great, it was called Inside, which he, like, he struggled with mental illness, and he had a very bad panic attack on stage once, like, during one of his comedy, like, shows, so he decided to step away from live performance, and then he was finally like, woohoo, I'm ready to go back, and COVID hit, so he couldn't perform anywhere, so he made this special, and it's a really great special, you should look into it, but, um... I think it's the same thing, like COVID, like if I didn't have this like break in my education during COVID when a lot of neurotypical people also took breaks, I think um, like now it's easier to explain because I could be like, oh, it was just COVID for like people who I know wouldn't get it.
0: Well. It's interesting because like I was talking to some people that I actually um, like go to Crane still and like other music schools. And it's interesting because they changed music, neurotypicals, neurotypicals and ableds changed music for themselves to fit their own needs. And then as soon as COVID started getting better, they took away these certain accessibilities and these certain views to fit the classical tradition. And it's really disgusting. And I'm going to say it, it's not okay. Um, I've had quite a few people from Crane come to me, tell me that like they're autoimmune compromised or like that they're allergic to the vaccine and that they can't take certain classes if they don't get the vaccine. And I went, what happened to this accessibility of being able to participate in music online? Don't get me wrong, I don't like to participate in that way, but there's a lot of people that genuinely need that accessibility and now it's being taken away again because ableds and neurotypicals are like oh it's fine now we don't need this
1: and it's really tough because music is in the end mostly about performance and like other people hearing your music and there's like the relationship there and you have to be able to like in some and technology has completely changed the way we interact with other people everyone knows that especially with music and like all these new technologies that have come out in the past like what decade two decades but um they also make like they also make it significantly more accessible if we choose to use it that way and the vaccine is tough I personally think everyone who can get vaccinated should get vaccinated,
0: but I feel the same way, but it's also like there are some people that really can't. Like I have friends who have EDS who can't get vaccinated. And if they do, they're gonna get violently ill. There are certain people with certain disabilities who have autoimmune diseases who can't get vaccinated because they could literally perish from it. And that's why the people who can take it should, and also why education needs to be accessible. Yeah, and it's it's tough. I think it's,
1: it goes back to what we said about invisible illnesses and what I said about people always think their own pain is worse than other people's, especially if they can't see it.
2: And um I don't know, it's just shit's wild, man. That's my
1: motto.
0: <laughs> it's an experience. It's just interesting because we, we're going from being so accessible. To now not being accessible. And like to me, I'm like, why are we backtracking?
2: <laughs> yeah. Not
0: saying I do not want all of our education to be online. That is not what I'm saying because I personally cannot do it online because of my disability. But there are some people who like really need online to be accessible for that.
1: just a matter of options. And yeah. we know they're possible now because we did it. Yep. And I understand, like, it's, you can't really have a band rehearsal online. There's some things about music school that are very tough to do online, but we've shown that we can do a lot of it. And now that people had that year to learn, like, the learning curve, then I think they're more capable. And like I said, I think everyone who can should get the vaccine. And I think, honestly, I think if you're an anti-vaxxer who's not listening to science you are if stupid. you're
0: an anti-vaxxer you probably shouldn't be listening to my podcast <laughs> yeah but um i'm just putting breaking, there. breaking the third wall of music does not support anti-vaxxer republicans no we believe in science here <laughs> except scientists who don't trust their patients <laughs> <laughs> we don't believe in that <laughs> oh
1: boy isms. Um, yeah, I don't know COVID has changed everything. Technology has changed everything. Stigma has changed over time. Music has changed over time. And we focus so much, like it's important to focus on the, the like life experience of the voice who's providing whatever music you're listening to both in the, what they've experienced and what their limits are
2: as a person. And yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or? Um, hmm. I would like
1: to recognize, just as a final thought, mental health isn't accessible like mental health help isn't accessible to everybody
2: as i said i have had suicidal thoughts and a suicide attempt in the past and
1: it shouldn't be about what other people think but other people do want you here
2: and it does get better and I can't speak for physical disabilities as much, and there's a lot wrong with the world, but stick around to
0: see if it gets better. (laughs) Um, So always the last thing that I asked is there, is there any advice that you'd want to maybe give to an educator, maybe someone with your disability, maybe someone in the music field, maybe there's something you want them to know, whatever it could be.
2: Just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. And I think we're advancing. I think you should focus on,
1: like we were talking about, diversifying the voices you amplify in your music classroom and in your programs.
2: And yeah, try to get as many voices as possible. And recognize that sometimes people are going through shit and you will never know about it. So act like everybody is going through shit because everybody is going through shit.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Courtney, for coming on this week. This, conversation this was, awesome. was awesome. I'm really happy I was, came on. Me too. It was a good conversation. Even though like we veered all these different directions, I think it's important because all those different directions do tie into our fields and the way that it's projected in our fields. And it's just important anyway. Um, So to everyone who listened to this week's podcast, I don't know why I'm waving. I always do this. Why am I waving? (laughs) Um, Thank you for coming and listening. And I always enjoy these podcasts and definitely tune in next week. I will have another guest on next week and I hope to continue to have guests on to have these conversations because they're important and, Courtney said it's important that we amplify each other's voices and also have so many different perspectives and yeah, tune in. I hope you like this
2: podcast and have a good one.